This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics is the only show of its kind on the air today in America, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. Today we begin with the President's State of the Union Address. How did it play for broadcast? Was the President successful in maximizing this year's unique elements? And did the Republican responses connect visually with their audience? Then we'll delve into the polyoptics world of digital and social media, a battleground where the White House is way out in front in 2011, but by no means alone. New media does matter, and we'll speak to a top expert, John Hlinko, later in the hour. But first, I'm joined by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. I encourage you to check out that website and join the conversation. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, and it's great to have you here. Great to be with you, Adam, as always. Many people talk about optics. We've been involved for years in creating them and uh, putting together the iconic images that surround our politicians. Would you agree with me that this week has been about the ultimate on the political calendar in terms of importance? when? when you talk about a speech. Absolutely. Uh, Certainly in a non-election year, the State of the Union defines the agenda for the rest of the year. And when you were in the White House and I was in the White House, the weeks leading up to the speech were frenetic for the speechwriters and also for the roles that you and I played, not only in planning the production itself on Capitol Hill, but in the days leading up to the speech. In this case, President Obama goes up to Schenectady, New York, the speech itself, and then the days after the speech when he goes to places like Manitowoc, Wisconsin. So a lot going on in our world of production out in the White House. So it's really important to create this narrative arc around the speech. As you just pointed out, there's a bit of pre-selling, the speech itself, and then the post-State of the Union sell getting out there and really trying to shine a light on individual elements of the speech and of the agenda, uh, 30,000-foot level assessment, what did you think about this year's State of the Union address? I thought it was interesting on a couple levels, Adam, and, for, and to be, they, even, they, they literally shone a light on the message. He, he, I'm looking at the New York Times, a picture by Doug Mills, a great Times photographer who accompanied the president out to Wisconsin. Caption reads, President Obama was shown a high-efficiency light system Wednesday as he toured Orion Energy Systems in Manitowoc, Wisconsin. So I thought that the speech itself was was light in many respects. <clears throat> we talked a little bit earlier about the humor that was injected to it. I thought it was a really terrific move uh, on the part of Speaker Boehner and those other and the others involved in the decision to seat Democrats along with the Republicans created so much less of this whack-a-mole effect of the Republicans getting up and, and applauding and the Democrats sitting on their hands. It really changed the perception or at least the the feel when you're looking. I don't know what it was like on the on the floor of the House. You've got every member of the Senate, House. You've got leaders from all walks of political life, the cabinet members, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You have... The, the diplomatic corps. You the cannot diplomatic. forget the diplomatic corps. That's right. And, and you know, I, I said this to Joe right before we went on the air to do live special coverage here on POTUS, was that uh, the dean of the diplomatic corps plays a role. Um, and, of course, nobody knows who that is. It happens to be uh, the ambassador to the United States from Djibouti. But uh, you're right. There were a lot of people there. But the feeling was different because everyone was 
in large part seated together, and so we didn't have this sort of seesaw effect. It put me off, Josh. I, I felt like it was a quantum leap in a weird direction from what I expected and knew about the State of the Union in the past. I found the whole thing a lot more watchable. I think that the—and I, I, and I will never know, Adam, how much discussion went on between uh, Republican and Democratic leadership about trying to tone down the applause lines, but I thought there were fewer. So I thought you could actually listen to the text of the speech a lot better than you could in years past. I also thought that the cutaway visual elements— uh, to show um, McCain and Kerry sitting together, other notable Republicans and Democrats who've been at odds in the past, putting their differences aside for one evening, had a, a very interesting effect on the viewer. And of course, the empty seat afforded to Representative Gabrielle Giffords, who couldn't be there, obviously, was a, a, a profound moment. So uh, all in all, I came away thinking not so much about the text of the speech, but from a from a television programming perspective, got a lot more out of it. You're absolutely right, and I want to concede those points. Having those marquee politicians seated together afforded a great visual. Clearly, the empty seat in honor of Gabrielle Giffords, also significant. But let me throw this at you, because sitting at home, I really felt that for the average viewer, what ultimately happened was fewer people got to their feet at all. And I think that was because if you were on the left-hand side of the aisle and all the Democrats got up, everybody got up together. Whereas when you're seated together, there was no group think. Some people did get up and a few people may have got up with them, but what it really did was kept the applause lines down in terms of number of standing ovations, I think, but it also made it just a little bit more subdued in the room. And I think that that energy didn't necessarily afford the president the kind of energy that he really wanted or expected to have and has had in years past. Pushing back again, I'd say that if you think about the narrative organizing theme of the president's speech in Tucson last week, if you could pin it, pin one word to it, it would be asking for civility in our political discourse. And there's nothing to me that said civility and political discourse than one, seeing that image of the members of both parties sitting together in the chamber, and two, this struck me, and full appreciation to Speaker Boehner, he was politely applauding even at lines which you knew that he probably disagreed with. It was left to day two, uh, and his follow-up interviews that he did, and in particular, the follow-up interview that Senator Reid from Nevada did, uh, which le- said, let civility reign on the eve of the State of the Union. Next day, we'll take the gloves off. Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. That I- iconic moment where we go from the entrance all the way up to the Speaker's rostrum, I think gives everybody that commonality between State of the Unions. And I thought the president was incredibly well-received. He made his way down uh, the island of the well of, of the house with, uh, with, with great magnanimous strides. He, he stopped and, and, and really spent time with a lot of people. He's well-known. I watched him go up there and thinking, he looks terrific. He looks incredibly confident. Um, the, the president's speech, however... Uh, seemed to me to have a weird construct, Josh. It, 
it was it was one of the things that you sometimes expect to hear at the beginning, the state of our union is strong, but that came towards the end. Did that have any effect on you? Did you appreciate that in, in, in a different way? I think as 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 fans of politics and viewers of the speech, it's something that we all sort of wait on the edge of our seat for to hear the president say the state of our union is strong, as if there's any question that it will be or not. Uh, and to have it come at the very end of what I think was an hour and seven minute speech, you almost uh, sort of suspended your conclusion about the speech until the president put that coda on it. Didn't bother me as much as it might have bothered you, Adam. I thought that the speech, as we talked about on the pre on our last show, uh, was not that almost frustrating laundry list of policy proposals that everyone throws into the washing machine and it comes out as a text. I thought it was more of a uh, more of a, a a narrative essay on America that, again, for all those production reasons that we talked about, fewer applause lines, more time to actually listen and hear. I thought it was a pretty good production. One of the things that we did talk about uh, on Polyoptics last week was this idea that as a television production, sharing the text of the script in a timely way with the pool producer is critically important. This time around, the White House ended up releasing the full text of the script even earlier than they normally do. And I, I think from a television perspective, it made a big difference. One thing I wasn't sure that I appreciated as much as I expected to was... Uh, the first lady and the people who shared that space in the gallery with her. Um, talk to me a little bit about what you saw there and, and whether that was a really integral part of the optics of the speech for you. <clears throat> That's sort of, uh, to me, an old device uh, that seems to not vary much from year to year. You can almost predict who's going to be in the first lady's box. And I think it was probably used a little bit less uh, that, by President Obama than it had been by President Bush and President Clinton. And I, it almost reminded me in a little way about how President Reagan would use it. He would refer to the people but not spend a lot of time in sidebars telling their full stories. So I thought that in many ways there were some Reagan-esque echoes to this uh, performance by President Obama. And interesting, Adam, the cover story on this week's Time magazine by Michael Scherer and Michael Duffy actually shows a composite of Reagan and Obama standing together, the Gipper, his arm on Obama's shoulder. I love the 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 license that is taken on the cover of these uh, magazines, and, and your point is well taken. Josh King, Adam Belmar here on Polyoptics on POTUS, Sirius 110 XM 130. Josh, uh, the First Lady was just exquisitely beautiful that night. She was uh, sharing that space with, uh, among other people, uh, some of the heroes in Arizona, that tragic shooting that preceded, uh, we made a comparison to 1986 when Ronald Reagan postponed in light of the space shuttle tragedy. Did you feel that uh, the country was taking perhaps a different look at the president and our elected leaders through the lens of the State of the Union this year because of that shooting? And did the president fully leverage that? I think you you walk a fine line between leveraging something and and overdoing it. And I, I think that the coverage and the engagement that he had in the prior week uh, in Tucson was probably probably reflected in people's views toward the president this week. Interesting, Captain Kelly uh, declined the invitation to attend for reasons I think we can all understand. Uh, in the box was uh, Dallas Green and Christina Green, appropriately. Uh, That's right. The parents to- of the young girl who who was who was killed. 
uh, in that shooting. That's right. Um, so, uh, and to the prior point, they didn't dwell on it. I think I think President Obama recognized the empty seat for Gabrielle Giffords, talked about the people in the First Lady's box, but I think understood that the time had come to to continue to recognize what that means, but to compartmentalize it in last week in Tucson and try to move forward with the speech. So I didn't feel like it was overdone uh, in any way. One more point on the optics uh, here, Josh. Everybody in the chamber, with the exception of the president, was wearing a black and white ribbon uh, in solidarity with uh, Gabby Gibbert's husband uh, and uh, certainly paying homage to everybody who suffered in that shooting um, what did you make of that, and uh, was it conspicuous that the president was not wearing one of those ribbons? Well, it was interesting. I watched some of the evening newscasts prior. They showed um, Representative Giffords's office still hard at work with a large box of black and white ribbons that they were passing out to fellow members, staff, constituents that came into the office, and certainly noted how many people in the chamber were wearing them. I think that the president has to make a, a decision about does he want to be a visual, does he want what's on his lapel to be a visual distraction uh, to what he's trying to say about things that go well beyond what happened in Tucson. So I thought about it during the speech and I wondered to myself, what if that ribbon were on the lapel? And I, I concluded for myself that, um, again, he, he devoted the first few minutes of the speech to appropriate recognition of what went on in Tucson, but but moved on to the many, many other issues that the country faces and to have continued to stare uh, straight ahead at that, um, at that ribbon might have sort of not allowed him to move on the way he did. I, I have a different take on that. We're going to pick this up in a second when we're joined by Jeannie Mamo, uh, former director of media affairs, a former deputy assistant to President George W. Bush. You're listening to Polyoptics on POTUS. I'm joined now by Jeannie Mamo of the Bush White House, George W. Bush, former director of media affairs and deputy assistant of the president. Welcome to you, Jeannie. Thank you. Glad to be here. Josh was just making a point uh, about the lapel uh, ribbons that were adorned by uh, almost every member of Congress that we could see on television that night. And uh, I thought that uh, the president not wearing it um, wasn't necessarily the wrong choice. I wonder whether or not he fully appreciated that that symbol was one that was going to be worn by everybody that night, and if he even had a chance to put one on. Uh, for people who didn't understand the background here, the president was just a little bit late arriving uh, up at the House uh, on Tuesday night, and they expedited like nobody's business. Josh, I, I know having been behind the scenes producing this, as you have when you were in the White House, those movements behind the scenes are can be slow and they can also be fast. And this was incredibly fast. I wonder if the president, Jeannie, even knew that he was walking into a chamber that was full of these ribbons. What do you think? What do you uh, know? I noticed that too, but I, but uh, Mrs. Obama was wearing one. So I, as I was watching, I wondered, did they hand that to her when once she got to the Hill or did she have it? And was it a conscious decision? I don't know. I will say this. I think... Um, Many times presidents in the past um, would not wear a ribbon because they think next time I have to wear that ribbon too. So it's sort of maybe a, if you do one, you have to do all. I don't know what the thinking was. I agree with you that because it was such a uniting um, element for that night. Yeah, that, that you know, it was, I was a little bit surprised, but then I thought, well, here you go. He's thinking 
I don't want to wear every ribbon that comes my way. I don't know. I don't know. Josh, we've, we've both been around. Uh, we've all been around events like this so much, and you know that one of the key players involved in this is the advance person assigned by the White House to go up to the speaker's uh, chambers <clears throat> to do countdown meetings and walkthroughs. And just about every element of the production that is involved, and Adam and I were talking earlier about even the introduction of the diplomatic corps with the ambassador for, from Djibouti, uh, we know every single piece of the TikTok that happens that evening, including the handing out of ribbons. So if we don't think that the White House advance person knew that ribbons would be a big part of this evening, I think the White House wouldn't have been doing its job. That is a fine point. And the president was wearing a... Uh you know, American flag lapel pin. I will tell you, I did a little reporting before the speech. I talked to uh, some folks uh, supporting the president. It was my understanding that uh, they did not do a run-through on a teleprompter of this speech until the morning of the speech. It had been worked through, but there were no uh, no formal rehearsals, certainly not, Josh, like the ones that maybe you and I were a part of in the in the family theater of the White House. I understand that that family theater is getting a lot more use because there's a young family in the White House, and the First Lady really appreciates that space and, and keeps it active for friends and family, and that they were in the map room once, maybe twice, with only a few people in it uh, to observe the, uh, the run-through. And, and the remark that I heard from a source inside the White House was, the president is almost better having not rehearsed it. He hits these things as far as the eye can see when he gets wood on the ball. And uh, in, 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 in their opinion, uh, he only needed to just go through the, uh, the applause line pauses, and that was about it. As we can all agree, this is not a president unschooled in the use of a teleprompter. <laughs> that's what I was about to say. He's, uh, that's his norm, so he doesn't need to. Whereas with President Bush, who really rarely used a teleprompter. And I think that's why he, when he did use one, he had to practice. That's exactly right. Josh and I have talked about that before. Josh, you were making a point earlier that I want to ask you to tease out a little bit because it, it plays into the overall optics on this speech and what came before and after. So pick up for a second, if you would, on uh, the sort of civility that led up to and the break, or at least the partisanship that, that erupted in the day following. Interesting. You know, I, I, as I said earlier, I've been struck and impressed on many levels by the comportment of Speaker Boehner in the weeks leading up to the State of the Union and on the evening itself, because there were things that I knew that the president was saying that fundamentally John Boehner disagreed with. And yet, taking the seat that had previously been occupied by Nancy Pelosi, uh, it, he, I think, saw it as his role, knowing that the lenses were on him at all times, to be respectful, civil, and to offer polite applause for even things that he probably disagreed with. And then pivot to the next day's reporting, in which... Uh, congressional leadership really hold their own news conferences, their own one-on-one -on -one interviews in their own offices. And you saw a very, uh, a very different view, certainly Boehner uh, disagreeing with a lot of the things the president said uh, uh, in a pointed way and striking to me, and I don't know what Jeannie thinks about this, a guy that Barack Obama campaigned for feverishly last fall, Harry Reid Nevada, to hold on to his Senate seat, was the most vociferous critic of some of the things that happened in the speech, especially the commitment to veto any bill that contained earmarks. Yeah, this has been sort of stunning for me, and I haven't figured out yet what this is about. Um, I, 
obviously Reed feels very strongly that he wants to bring money back home to Nevada. And uh, apparently they haven't worked that out yet and they do it, didn't do it behind the scenes. But it also, you know, for those of us who live and breathe politics and, and wonder what's behind all these things um, is... Uh, why they've drawn this sort of bright line. Because really, Reid is the only person on Capitol Hill, Democrat or Republican, who is saying, I'm for earmarks. He's the only one, and we're, we're going to sort of cross the line into into real hard politics here for a second, but he's the only one, in my opinion, who's willing to stand up and say as much right now. He's certainly not, uh, in my opinion, the only one who feels this way. Uh, mostly because everything is criticized when it comes to cutting the budget and trying to dial back spending and address the issues around the the massive uh, budget deficit that we're running is that earmarks account for such a small part of this but josh this is all about optics in this united front uh and, and you'll constantly have republicans trying to co-opt issues for democrats and vice versa but there seems to be a really sort of critical mass gathering around this one that's saying, you know what, forget the facts. We're just not going to do this. We're going to put it aside. The American people don't want to hear about it. They want to see it. It seems corrupt. I hate to, to sort of put words in people's mouths, but that is the way it's perceived, I think, Josh. So this division between the president and the Senate majority leader just in the day after, very interesting indeed. Yeah, it's not my place to to agree or disagree with Senator Reid my, my my curiosity is, in fact, as you said, Adam, in the polyoptics of it, which is day after uh, aides to the minority leader set up the American and congressional and U.S. Senate flags just so to give him a, a full backdrop, and and the tone that was expressed in the inter, in the in the video clips that were shown, it just it it, it showed it, it didn't show sort of the that same civility that was present in all the in all the previous dialogue. So, if I were trying to uh, advise on the polyoptic strategy uh, of of making your statements, I just want want it to want to lighten the scene a little bit and maybe not be as as uh, as stern faced and unyielding as it seemed he was in his opposition. And let's remember what the president, uh, how he came across when he made his point uh, just the night before. Because you deserve to know exactly how and where your tax dollars are being spent, you'll be able to go to a website and get that information for the very first time in history. Because you deserve to know when your elected officials are meeting with lobbyists. I asked Congress to do what the White House has already done. Put that information online. And because the American people deserve to know that special interests aren't larding up legislation with pet projects, both parties in Congress should know this. If a bill comes to my desk with earmarks inside, I will veto it. I will veto it. So, you know, the president also a bit unwavering and very uh, clear, I think. He, he often uses that construct. He says, let me be clear. I think he was very clear on this point in the speech, uh, Josh. Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's a, that is a, a good speech writing device, the let me be clear. I remember Nixon, oh, let me be perfectly clear. <laughs> um, 
But, there you go, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Joshua <laughs> King doing Nixon. He's going to be here all week. Uh, but I, um, and again, you heard the applause in in the in the chamber. And if you were looking at the at the head-on uh, tight shot, you would have seen Boehner applauding politely, not necessarily agreeing, but applauding politely. That's an excellent point, Jeannie. Uh, any take on that part of it? Well, I definitely think Boehner agrees with no earmarks. Um, yeah, and he said that yeah. loud and clear. So uh, the president was was pretty astute at finding ways to create that optic that Josh points out that I think, you know, and again, King, I think you're right on here. This, even more than I would have given credit before we started this discussion, Josh King is is right that uh, the, the, the construct of the speech led you to see a lot more agreement between these two men behind the president than you might have expected. Adam, Jeannie, one other thing I'm curious, you're your thoughts on the, and this was certainly picked up in the coverage immediately after the speech, the repeated use of the phrase winning the future. I'm glad you got there because that's a big thing I want to talk about. I thought that uh, it was a great construct. Uh, It was utilized fairly well, uh, but it wasn't the thing that just stood out in my mind. I mean, it's been teased out uh, quite effectively by uh, Chuck Todd and, and, and other press following it, but it wasn't the thing that was resonating in my head after the speech, and I think that that's what made it, to my mind, sort of not brought to fruition. I don't think they really tease that out, Jeannie, enough. I agree with that, and I think um, I think if you weren't really paying to the paying attention to the coverage afterwards, you would have missed that in the speech. I mean, I, honestly, it was not a yes, we can, yes, we can, yes, we can. That became so apparent during the campaign. This was not winning the future, winning the future, winning the future. I think you didn't get that in the speech, but you got that in all the materials after the speech. Now, obviously, there's also been some criticism of winning the future, and perhaps what those initials stand yeah. for, which is I, what a lot I saw of that people from a will certain pick former governor of Alaska. Exactly, exactly. Should we point it out? WTF. (laughs) Not exactly what you normally think WTF is, but winning the future, I like it as a construct, as a message. Uh, And Josh and Jeannie, I want to ask you, uh, the president has gone on uh, after the State of the Union to do what, when we were in the White House, so often gets done, to go out into the country to shine a spotlight on businesses who have been helped by policies and will continue to build jobs and be a part of attaining the goals the president laid out. And yet, and Josh, you are uh, as an astute critic as anyone on these issues, there's no messaging out there. There was nothing visual to support the president on his first outing that says we're winning the future or that we're in a place. I mean, what was distinctive about that event following the State of the Union that really brought home the messaging besides the language in his speech? I'd say it's a long road and not a sprint in this particular respect. And I think here it's very interesting to pick up on what Jeannie said and pull the veil back a little bit on process. Because, Jeannie, you are exactly right. It didn't resonate immediately as you were sitting in the chair watching the speech. It was left to Dan Pfeiffer, Robert Gibbs, Mm -hmm. other people within the White House message machine to sit down with a Chuck Todd and say, hey, did you realize how many times this phrase, winning the future, was in it? Wouldn't that make an interesting piece of video for your day after following package? And if you think about what that is, it's three words, winning the future. And if you think back to 2008, change we can believe in, that was uh, plastered on every podium, put on every backdrop uh, in the paid-for 2008 campaign. And if you draw a parallel between 
2012 and 1996, President Clinton's reelection, building a bridge to the 21st century. Mm -hmm. This adoption of future focused language and metaphor, uh, I think, doesn't necessarily have to show itself the day after the State of the Union or the week after the State of the Union. But when you get campaign paid for events with backdrops, marketing, uh, iconography, I think we'll see it again and again. And I agree with you that um, it's going to take some time. Um, it, it'll just be an interesting thing to watch. Will they stick with this? I mean, will this become the change you can believe in? Is this the um, slogan for 2012? I mean, I don't know. Um, we're going to find out soon, I guess. Um, I, I'm going to jump in and say I, I think it's just downright lazy. Um, and, and I feel that way sometimes, and I don't mean it in a personally critical way. But, you know, from an advanced perspective and a messaging perspective for White House communications, missing an opportunity coming off of, you know, they say strike while the iron is hot. Well, if you're going to introduce it and put it in the president's State of the Union address, and I think find that it can be very effective, and I I believe it can be, and I believe that it's going to resonate with the American people, I would hit it again. And I wouldn't wait. And I think that uh, it would have been easy to do. And, you know, when it comes down to money and politics and imaging and optics, uh, where there's a will, there's a way within, um, you know, the, the bright lines of what's uh, uh, acceptable and what is legal. Uh, but uh, we didn't even really know where this event was. There was nothing that really overtly told me the name of the company. Um, to their credit, I would also say that uh, it was a multi-pronged approach that the White House is taking, having uh, other members of the administration, including the vice president out there, I want to remind everyone you're listening to Polyoptics. I'm Adam Belmar. You've got Josh King, Jeannie Mamo, listening to POTUS, Sirius 110, XM 130. Our mission to shine a bright light on the theater of American politics. And there are two important things I want to get to uh, while we still have the time to talk. We have learned uh, this week that a new White House press secretary uh, is is being introduced to the country. That, uh, that new press secretary is Jay Carney. Uh, he is a former Washington bureau chief for Time magazine. He is married to a woman I know very well and worked very closely with at ABC News, Claire Shipman. And he has been working as the director of communications for Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, Josh, the, the theater of American politics, certainly the theater of the presidency, uh, is really, really at the center of the job of a, of a, of a White House press secretary. What do you make of uh, Jay Carney's choice uh, to fill this job and be the successor to uh, Robert Gibbs? Great choice, Adam. A, a guy who I would have thought back as soon as you heard that Robert Gibbs would leave, you knew that Jay Carney had been uh, working for Vice President Biden since the very beginning of this administration. You knew his background at Time Magazine. Uh, he's been part of the Washington media establishment along with Claire going back for so long. Um, and I think it's a it, it's who I would have pegged immediately uh, as the as the as a great choice. Of course, there was a lot of. Uh, uh, toing and froing, and other people's hats being in the <clears throat> ring in the weeks following that. But you know, Jay has written these exact same uh, cover pieces for Time Magazine that you see on the newsstands this week. Why Obama loves Reagan. So no one understands the creation of a narrative uh, as well as a guy like Jay Carney with all of experience. And at the same time, Adam and Jeannie, knowing all of the logistics and uh, 
planning that goes into just moving a president from Washington to Camp David, Washington to... You can have all the ideas in the world, but if you don't know what's going on behind the scenes and how you get something done in a White House, Jeannie, you're really no good to the president. This is true. Can can I just talk about, when we're talking about optics, let's talk about the optics of this actual choice. Uh, My questions are, um, why did it take so long, Um, to be honest with you? I think Jay Carney is a fabulous choice. And my point is, why didn't they make it three weeks ago? I can address that Um, for a second. Um, Done a little bit of reporting on it. Josh and I have spoken about this off the air. And I don't want to give up sources very close to the White House who we've been talking to. But they did make a good faith effort to interview and to really vet a number of people for this position. So while I can't speak to the inside knowledge of what was going on in the head of the president, the chief of staff, we do know that uh, a number of women, uh, high-placed women... Well, and that was going to be my point, is that, you know, there were optics about should we choose a woman? Does this White House need more women? Um, Which, again, is an optic in some ways. Absolutely. Um, Josh, what do you think? I think it's a long... Again, it's a long road. Uh, This job burns people out after two years. That's been the uh, that's been the length of service during uh, Bush 43, during Clinton 42. You started with... Uh, Since 24-hour cable news, Josh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so um, if, you, if you think about D.D. Uh, uh, Myers to Mike McCurry to Joe Lockhart to Jake Seward, you can rattle off the names in, in the Bush years. Uh, I think there's certainly plenty of time for other people to, to serve and... and uh, um, it's only a two-year well, job. And I, and I agree. Look, I think Jay Carney is perfect. He's the right guy at the right time. Um, this White House, uh, as we know, and the president would tell you. Well, share a story you. with us, Jeannie. You were you know, deep at the heart of the Bush administration at a time when Tony Snow was leaving and people were looking yeah. around <clears throat> and figuring out who will be our next press secretary. And you and Dana Perino go way back, very close friends. What was the thought inside the White House? Senior leadership, mm-hmm. senior staff of which you were part. What was mm-hmm. what was the, the conundrum there? And, and Okay, well let me let me let me talk about I think the similarities here are between Tony Snow and Jay Carney. Two journalists who know journalists and who are uh, who look out at the briefing room and see their colleagues. And I think that is why Jay Carney will, will be great. It's because he's already, he's already known, he's trusted. Um, he obviously has a, you know, he was on uh, ABC News for, and still is, I think, as a commentator. Um, when I was producing This Week with George Stephanopoulos, yeah. he was a regular on yeah. our broadcast. And he has, let's, let's remember this too, he has the added advantage of having worked in the White House for Vice President Biden already for the first two years. So that, I have to tell you, that's... He knows where the bodies are. Exactly. And that is invaluable. Well, he knows what the rhythm of the White House is, which I think is very important. I think it's got to be difficult to pick an outsider to come in to do that job. Pulling the window back on the process a little bit, as as all of us know, when you're selected uh, to become press secretary, especially if you come in from the outside, you almost have to go into a bunker for two mm-hmm. months or three mm-hmm. months to foreign policy school to understand the nuances of every word that you say from the podium. And Jay, having traveled with Vice President Biden to Iraq and Afghanistan so many times, having heard so many briefings already, Jeannie, you make an excellent point just about his natural preparation for this. Yeah, I mean, he that it just goes back to my point. I was just trying to figure out why it wasn't done sooner. And I, th- I think, Adam, obviously, you know, you've been talking to people. It must have been they... They wanted to do a thorough vetting, and, and again, I think they were really thinking about a woman. Well, I can tell you that, that what we know for fact 
without throwing out a bunch of sources to you here on Polyoptics here on uh, POTUS, Sirius 110 XM 130, is that they were in the process of doing interviews with other potential candidates within the last 72 hours. So they were buttoning this up. It was a considered decision, not a surprise. But in the end, I think for us here at Polyoptics, it just speaks to this one thing. What will change? What will improve? What needs to happen in the theater of the American presidency for for Barack Obama as he not only goes forward in this new agenda, this job-creating, economic stimulating, rebuilding America, talking about winning the future, how are they going to put that into action? And I, I leave that for you, Josh, and for Eugenie. Is there something that we can really expect a demonstrative change in the near term because of this amazing tactician being brought into the mix? I, I think it's a slow build, as I, as I said before, which is, and this again goes to the natural uh, constraints that a, uh, that a president has while he's in office and not running a paid for political campaign, which is if you go out to Manitowoc, Wisconsin, uh, and go to uh, Orion Light Systems or Orion Energy Systems where we went the other day, he can't put up a banner or a backdrop that says winning the future. No, I disagree. He, he, he can't, can't do... We, we, we used to do it and we did it, I thought, to great effect. Now, it was hard to to, to believe that you, you had that great effect when President Bush's uh, you know, ratings with, with the American people were as low as they were for other reasons altogether. I think it can be done. I'm not saying it necessarily should be. You you, you know that I I, I kind of do feel that way. But no, I I think you're right. I, and I give full full credit to how how crafty and ingenious the Bush 43 message message designers were. And and you and Scott uh, were chief among them. I I, I was off. I, I you'll talk to any of my friends, I was often in amazement of how well and effectively you did it. And I've not been shy from saying that when he gets in Air Force One, President Obama, and flies to Schenectady or Manitowoc and just does a factory tour, you don't get the context the way you got during his 2008 campaign. You know, the other thing as we wrap up this portion of polyoptics uh, that I wanted to ask both of you is I'm going to talk about it again in just a second with another uh, really magnificent and uh, leading uh, expert on the issue of digital and social media extensions when it comes to politics. But the White House, to their credit, from my perspective, and I'll say it, did a magnificent job the other night of offering enhanced, what they call enhanced coverage on the internet, uh, letting people see the president and see visual, almost like a PowerPoint, that brought forward specific graphical elements that help support the president's points. And then just a day later, two days later, they're holding you know digital town hall meetings on YouTube and doing the kind of things, Jeannie, that you and I were really charged with. This was really your province, the Bush White House. This technology has come a long way. Do you see them being successful at what they're doing? Yeah, and that, let's just talk a second about the technology. That's the difference. And look, we were struggling with this. As we were leaving office, the Internet was really taking off. Um, you know, and we, those were the pressures we had is you're leaving office, you don't have the money, um, but you're being pressured to do this. Now, I have often told this story um, because I read it in the Washington Post that the Obama campaign had 109 people working on their uh, website when he was can a candidate. 
I thought, oh, my God, I've got six people working on my website at the White House. This is going to be, you know, horrible transition for them, which I think it was a very difficult, difficult transition. I think just now, two years into the administration, they have a whole uh, new office of new media, which has been up and running for two years now. And they just now are beginning to sort of get their sea legs and realize, okay, now we've built an infrastructure because, listen, there are all kinds of roadblocks in your way when you when you are dealing with something in the government versus the private sector. I mean, they have a the Presidential Records Act, which is something they have to deal with. I mean, it is a difficult, difficult. Well, closed captioning too, right? I mean, just making this accessible to all absolutely, Americans. Absolutely, absolutely, and it, it it is time intensive. It is um, a lot of hurdles to jump through. I was down in the council's office constantly saying, "Can we do this? Can we do this?" And the answer typically came back, "No." I think technology has come a long way. It is going to keep. And to their credit, they have made it a major focus. Josh, what do you think? I've been watching this closely uh, throughout the first two years of the administration because I, like you guys, were was uh, struck by how effective the Obama campaign was in 2008, not only with their own website, but with their Flickr feeds of hundreds of thousands of pictures that really brought the grassroots home. And I was equally interested in how they were going to make this transition to a White House, which Obviously, uh, the Bush 43 White House made enormous strides over the, over the Clinton website, which was nothing more than really just a, a bulletin board for the president's biography. Um, but I th- I've been watching this grow progressively. Uh, during the healthcare uh, fight, they had they used video extensively. Even the the mainstay uh, vehicle of the president's message uh, de- delivery each week, the radio address has under President Obama been turned into simply the president's address, shot in high definition and streamed and embeddable to any blog that wants to pick it up. So uh, th- this, I was, Adam uh, gave me a heads up to go look at this on Tuesday night, and I did, and I was blown away as I have been by the, I think, two million uh, channel views that, that happened on YouTube for his uh, prior to his appearance uh, there. All this feeds into what's going to be the the mainstream coverage that evening. Uh, the news picking up him doing the YouTube thing, uh, the newspaper picking up the YouTube. So I, I think uh, I, they're just getting better and better at this, as, as administrations always do. For me, uh, to put a, a bit of a cap on this, uh, I would just say that, that that coverage that you talked about, Josh, that coverage that Jeannie meant so much to you as the director of media affairs. I mean, you were in charge of the president's radio address during the eight years of the uh, Bush administration. You knew, foresaw, and advocated for many years uh, at the end of the Bush administration that we go to a, a visual representation of that. It didn't happen, but President Obama, to his credit, made it a priority from day one. They've stuck with it. They found a way to make it happen. And, and ultimately, when it comes to selling the president and his message, I think you have, we talk about bifurcated elements, you have a whole group of people who only engage in a digital way now. You can't disenfranchise them. You have to give them something. And for them, this means everything. Now, it's not everyone. Many people traditionally will get their media in a more conservative or traditional sense over the radio or the television or the newspaper or the magazines that Josh has talked about. But for these folks, uh, uh, I would submit to you, Folks in the demo, the 25 to 54 group that advertisers pay for, the kind of people who came out for President Obama so actively Mm -hmm. in 2008, 
this is incredibly effective, and it's a growing group, and I think it's it's to his credit, he's doing a great job there, unbelievably so. Well, and I just I just wonder uh, what effect the iPad has had on all of this. I really was struck with that enhanced version they did on the website that 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 was built for an iPad. It really was. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. Yeah, and and that's that is one of the things we're doing here at Polyoptics, taking a look at the technology, the way that the uh, the imagery of the presidency and American politics unfolds. I want to thank you both for being a part of of Polyoptics, Josh. As always, uh, Jeannie, thank you for being here again, an important part of our team. You're listening to us on POTUS, Sirius 110 XM 130. We'll be back talking a little bit more about digital and social and how it didn't work so well for. Michelle Bachman. History in the making. This is POTUS, Sirius 110, XM 130. The perilous battle that was fought during World War II in the Pacific at Iwo Jima was a battle against all odds. And yet this picture immortalizes the victory of young GIs over the incursion. That was Michelle Bachman with the Tea Party response after the State of the Union. Iwo Jamma, you know, she was Jamma that night. Uh, perhaps the worst response to a State of the Union address I have ever seen. This is Polyoptics. I am Adam Belmar. You're listening to us on POTUS, Series 110 XM 130. John Halinko, social media and digital expert, is joining us now. Uh, John, did you have a chance to watch any of uh, the Republican responses, including Michelle Bachman's Iwo Jamma debacle? Yeah, Iwo Jamma, Iwo Jamma. That was a band in the 70s, wasn't it? Yeah, some great, great times. stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I did actually watch that. I had live blogged some of the... Um, some of the, the State of the Union and the response itself. And, uh, you know, i got to say for Michelle, I mean, Iwo Jima, how do you mess that one up? And how do you not know where the camera is? And to be honest, when you when your rep is that you're a little bit crazy already, you kind of don't really want to push the envelope You don't need to play the type on yeah, that one? Yeah, really. You know, from an optics perspective, uh, and, and that's our charge here at Polyoptics, to sort of shine a light on the theater of American politics, being able to give voice to the Tea Party and uh, use digital platforms in order to reach that audience, she attempted uh, in, in sort of the same fashion, although, you know, terribly missed the mark, I'm sad to say, uh, a sort of multimedia presentation to give visual elements in support of what she was talking about and some of the themes. The White House did the same in an enhanced streaming video feed, John. I thought it was absolutely groundbreaking and fantastic. No, I agree. And and I think what the White House did right, to be honest, from a polyoptics perspective versus Bachman, is that... uh, the the multimedia stuff was happening concurrent to it, but the but the, the the central image was of the president in front of hundreds and hundreds of elected officials in this you know incredible um, chamber with with such a history. The idea of trying to do it as part of the presentation it was just it was just quite awkward. But what the White House did, I, I think, to their credit, is they really got people engaged in a number of fronts. You know, this was this is a social media president. Uh, that's part of how he got into office. And it looks like now they're finally starting to leverage that in a big way. When you say finally starting to leverage it, we, we had uh, Jeannie Mamo on, uh, was the media uh, affairs director in the Bush White House, and we had a bit of a discussion that the technology was really still coming of age during the Bush administration. We could look yeah. back and say, gosh, at the beginning of it, people didn't even really have Blackberries. By the end, some of this is just cultural, but they have arrived. Oh, I think it very much arrived. And, and you're right. I mean, I worked on the 2004 presidential campaign, and it still astonishes me that for all practical purposes, Facebook and YouTube didn't exist. 
and to think that they were not around so recently, and you know, 2008 had really come of age. But what we're seeing now, I mean, we're in a position now where a majority of American voters have Facebook accounts. That's astonishing. I mean, just think about the reach. Think about the implications for that. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because I feel very strongly that as we go week after week on the mission of polyoptics here on POTUS, that we have to pay special attention to the image, to the iconography, and to the sweep of digital platforms in political messaging and in communication. Now, this is really what you do for a living, and I I want everyone to know that it is not uh, any grandiose statement to say that John is an expert. He, along with many others, has really been at the cutting edge of this technology and employing it for political purposes, helping to get people elected, to rally people around issues and campaigns. But talk to me for a second, John, if we have arrived and enhanced video feeds with all kinds of uh, digital extensions to learn more and appreciate the details in a speech like the State of the Union, how how significant is it to keep building your persona in this space? It's not a one and done. You have to do it all the time, right? Yeah, it's got to be an ongoing conversation, an ongoing, and, and literally a conversation, not a monologue. Uh, it, this is something, and if we step back for a sec and we say, how do people define their sense of reality? They define it by the perceptions of those around them, especially those closest. So social media is inherently social. People are sharing opinions, ideas, and thoughts. And unless you're in there on a regular basis, uh, your image will be defined for you by others. Let's let's have a quick listen to one of the other things that was novel that uh, the White House did following the State of the Union. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the White House. My name is Steve Grove, and I'm the head of news and politics at YouTube. And we're delighted that President Obama has once again invited us to the White House to answer your top voted questions in the first exclusive interview after the State of the Union speech. Welcome back to YouTube, Mr. President. It's great to be here, Steve. Thank Welcome you so back to YouTube, well, Mr. President. Mr. President He's there every week engaging his audience with yeah. an address that we used to call just the radio address. Now it's the President's address to the nation on radio, but it's really also on YouTube. And here he is in, in what I think you're talking about is dialogue. It wasn't just him no. talking at people. He was answering questions. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very effective. I mean, the reality is the guy's a great speaker. I mean, the fact that he took the a radio address and made it essentially a wireside chat, yeah, it, it's, it's a big deal. And it, it's very effective. A lot of people watch this. They talk about it. And now in this case, it really was a dialogue. It was a back and forth. Let's talk about the pitfalls. Um, you know, not everybody is doing it or has the, the wherewithal to have a staff to support the kind of creativity, uh, both in real time and, as, as I think you could probably attest, the kind of uh, preparation that probably went into having yeah. uh, you know, a yeah. well-formed graphic for just about every point uh, that the White House did for their, their State of the Union address. What are the pitfalls of doing it badly, and is it worse doing uh, this kind of communication poorly and hurting your sort of polyoptics curating than not doing it at all? Well, I mean, they say diamonds are forever, but YouTube is forever. I mean, it's there. I mean, once something is on YouTube, once you've done it, the polyoptics of it will will either, uh, you know, be with you in a good way or will haunt you um, on an ongoing basis. So it's, you know, it's, I, I think people need to uh, tread carefully. I mean, go in there and be bold and, and do stuff and, and, and have fun. And um, but but really plan what you're doing. I mean, I hate to say planned spontaneity, but that's kind of really what you need to strive for on something like a YouTube. Well, it's it's almost like uh, you're creating a vehicle uh, for the principal, and so yeah. the thoughtfulness and the planning that goes into it surrounds how we're going to do it yeah. and with whom, 
when and how we engage. But the spontaneity then comes when you bring the principal in and, you know, they're not involved in the yeah. minutiae around it, but just come in and be themselves, right? They get to have that very authentic yeah. communication. No, I think it's I think it's exactly right. It's got to be authentic. Cause, I mean, part of the idea here is you want to do communication that's going to go viral, you know, that's going to get a lot of attention and it's going to come across well. And something that is... Um, Something that is too planned and too non-spontaneous doesn't really play well on YouTube. So what you want to do is set up the conditions for success. You know, have a good um, well of supporters ready to jump in and to, you know, define the perceptions of others. But to do it in a way where the principle is not is not trapped, is not feeling like they're kind of you know having to really really follow a very tight script. This is additional stuff, right? It's not in lieu of, and, and I, that's my belief, but I ask it to you as a question because yeah. the White House, for example, and for people who are listening, I, I have a unique insight into this because we helped put the infrastructure in place that uh, Barack Obama's administration is now utilizing. We, we really had to lay that foundation technologically and wire the White House in a way and build a new media center that they moved into, which we never used in the Bush administration, so that they could service the presidency in the 21st century way the presidency should be serviced. But really, what we thought, and John, tell me if you agree, is that those old traditional methods of getting that that uh, video feed out of you know working with with uh, still photographers and the magazine writers that that doesn't go away. You've now yeah. got more work to do yeah. because you've got a whole audience out there that's growing that may only interface with your guy in this way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the same way that radio didn't replace the newspaper, it augmented it, and TV didn't replace the, new, the radio, it augmented it. Um, the same is true with new media. I mean, the reality is that people like getting their media in different ways. And with social media now, with um, the web, um, there there are a chunk of people, and I would argue pretty important people, that, that like getting their media in that way. And the nice thing about it is if you're in a social media environment, you have the capability to be a publisher and instantly spread it. But there's no doubt. I mean, the, the old ways are still incredibly important. I want to go into what I like to think of as primary and then secondary and tertiary uses of social media. What do I mean by that? Well, I want you to try and tease this out, but if you're the White House and you've got the president up in Wisconsin, he's doing a, a post-State of the Union event, that you've got a, a recap, a, a distillation, or even the entire thing available on uh, digital platforms, the fact that other people can then take it and share it within yeah. their businesses and communities, that's the trick, isn't it? Yeah, it's very much the trick. I mean, the trick is to have a very, very large community so that, you know, the next day when people are talking around the water coolers or they're emailing each other or, like, you want them to have already heard from your supporters. Because the reality is, again, you know, people are, um, a lot of these issues that he talks about or any president talks about are very complex, very difficult. So you want to have your, I hate to say talking points, but that, you know, that's, that's the truth. As quickly as possible, you want as many people as possible to be um, getting your story out. And, you know, doing it through social media, you know, the average Facebook user may have hundreds, um, frankly, may, maybe even more than a thousand friends at this point. That's, that's an audience. And if you can reach them and get, your, get them on your side and ready to spread a message, you can really define the perceptions of those in a big, big way. You're listening to my conversation with John Hlinko. Uh, we call him the buzz czar. In reality, he is uh, a f one of the foremost digital, social, political experts in the United States. He's been involved in democratic politics for a very long time. Uh, and uh, 
you know, John, when we talk about polyoptics here on POTUS, uh, we can focus almost anything through that lens. But I want you to, can you peel back the onion a yeah. little bit and talk about, uh, maybe even just give us a real story, if you will, about what's going on when, pe- what platforms, is it Flickr, is it YouTube, is it Facebook? Is there a lot more that you just, it's too much enough, right? Yeah. Well, you can drive yourself nuts, but I mean, you know, I think for me, you know, the big 800-pound gorilla now is Facebook or 800-gigabyte gorilla. Um, and the reason for that is, uh, number one, 500 million people and growing, uh, a majority of U.S. voters on Facebook. But the ability to build an audience, um, I, I think it's unparalleled. Uh, I mean, to get really in the weeds, um, or to step back for a sec, when you, when you do one of these John, are we in the weeds or are we backing up? Because I think, you know, I'm like hunting with Dick Cheney. I'm going to get shot here. I don't know where I am. I think we're in very tall weeds. Okay, but, tall weeds. Um, I think one of the key things is you want to have an audience on board when you need to use them in the same way that, when you, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to be um, developing your message and going out and having to buy the megaphone later. You want the megaphone ready when you need to make that announcement. So the good thing about Facebook is, number one, uh, it, it's very, very doable to go out and, and grow an audience, uh, I mean, frankly, through paid advertising, through um, you know some viral techniques. But what's also nice is it's an incredibly viral community. So if you get a message out and it's compelling and it makes an emotional impact and it resonates, that person can spread it very, very quickly. I was looking very hard before the State of the Union at what the pre-sell on the digital and social extensions were going to be. One of the things that I found uh, was that YouTube, there was some advertising up there letting people know, and it looked like YouTube because they were really in charge of the editorial on what the president was being asked, and they were, as we just heard, conducting that interview, uh, they were carrying their own water on the advertising. Paid advertising is an important part of being able to gather that critical mass and get yeah. your, your stuff out yeah. there. Isn't that kind of anathema to uh, some political entities spending money on, on advertising in that way? Is that, is that a challenge or is that more sort of the province of campaigns? Well, the reality is there's no such thing as a free launch. So, um, you know, if you want to get the message out there... You know, but I'm <laughs> thank you. And everybody likes to think it's sort of like a Frank Capra movie, where gosh, all the kids just get together and they build a clubhouse in the old dump or something. You know, this stuff doesn't really happen, um, or very, very rare that it happens so spontaneously. And the viralness is, uh, you know, is is so um, uh, self-generating. Uh, what what it there's a lot of stimuli out there, and you need to get people's attention. And one of the ways to do that is to do it through paid advertising. And uh, it's not saying that you're going to use that advertising to make them think something. You you at least want to get their attention, though. That, that's a very, very important part. Now, it, it gets very interesting when you're talking about a president versus a campaign. Because is that something that the um, the White House should be spending money on? I mean, could they really go out and spend tens of millions in advertising for this? Well, that'd be a little bit odd. But a campaign, um, and as we you know shift more and more into a campaign for 2012, you know, it it's, I mean, if they're going to spend a billion dollars or whatever on TV, my God, of course, spend it on this as well. Well, you know what? The reality is, and I think people who are listening to this broadcast and listen to POTUS, they're quite savvy when it comes to American politics today. And when you have all kinds of marketing campaigns going around different initiatives, I mean, you could take a look at, uh, say, the Energy Star brand that the Department of uh, Energy and the EPA administer. Those are very large contracts. They work in conjunction with public relations houses and others. And you'd be silly if you didn't think that some of the tools that were being utilized ultimately with public dollars to leverage those messages end up on places like Facebook and so on. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reality is, you know, I mean, if you look at the biggest companies out there, the most successful products, you know, advertising is almost invariably a part of it. And um, the reality is, if we're talking about polyoptics and talking about how people are perceiving uh, the principle, perceiving a campaign, an issue, it's very, very important. It doesn't mean it's the only thing. You need to have a great, compelling message, but you need to get people to hear it as well. John, point us forward uh, as we wrap up this this episode of Polyoptics uh, to what you think as we go through this year before the big 2012 election year. How much in the early running for the presidential uh, nomination on both sides uh, are we going to be seeing the use of uh, digital social from a polyoptics? Are they going to be creating yeah. their images there, or just levering images that leveraging images that they make in the real world yeah. in the digital world? Well, there's what they will be doing, what they should be doing. Uh, I think what, what will probably happen is there'll be a lot of uh, treating of social media as if it's old media. When I say old media, I mean 10-year-old media, email. Um, there'll be a lot of treating of it as let's just build an audience, do lots of advertising, and do lots of kind of let's just sort of build a pile of stuff and then not really use it. What they should be doing is definitely doing that, getting out early. Because, uh, I mean, let's face it, the folks paying attention now for 2012 are the mavens who are going to be influencing their friends, their family, their coworkers. So reach out to them now while you can still get them, but then keep them engaged. Give them stuff that's interesting, stuff that they want to spread. That's where I think a lot of the campaigns are going to fall short. You are listening to John Halinko, and if you have questions for him, and I do almost every day, and he can attest to that, you can find him at his newest venture, leftaction.com. John, I want to thank you for being a part of a Polyoptics here on POTUS. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That's it for Polyoptics here on POTUS this week. I want to thank Josh King, Jeannie Mamo, and John Halinko for joining us in this conversation. A great week ahead as we look at the new White House press secretary and begin to understand what the next two years of the Obama administration and the 112th Congress will look like and how effective the optics surrounding these politicians and their messages actually are. Thanks for listening to Polyoptics. I am Adam Belmar, and you are listening to POTUS, Politics of the United States, Sirius 110, XM 130. POTUS. This is POTUS. Politics of the United States for the people of the United States. POTUS. At Sirius 110. 110, XM 130. This is POTUS.